I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Sumita Pahwa, the scripts, about her brand new book, Politics as Worship, Righteous Activism in the Egyptian Muslim Brothers, which was just published by Syracuse University Press. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Sumita Pahwa of Scripps and the author of the brand new book, literally released this week, um, Politics as Worship, Righteous Activism and the Egyptian Muslim Brothers, just published by Syracuse University Press. Uh, Sumita, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. So tell us a little bit about this book and why you chose to write it and you know what you think the big contribution is. Okay. Um, in the mid-2000s, when I was starting to study the brothers, the main arguments for the directions that they were going in were very much driven by this idea of a tension, a fundamental tension between the religious organizational mission and the political mission. And this was an argument that was interesting because it assumed that the drivers of change in the movement were going to be external. Um, politics was the site of change. Politics was what was going to diversify what the movement did uh, and create some divisions in it. And also the assumption there was that religion, in a sense, if you want to think about Dawah, the original mission of the brothers, which is to build the good Muslim individual and family and society, was in some sense going to have to take a second place because we assumed that the logics of Dawah and of politics were distinct and separate and that there was a trade-off. Another assumption was that Ultimately, um, the brothers were going to have to think about what was going to happen to the Dawah mission and maybe separate, split the Dawah mission from the political mission. And as they got more involved in politics, they were presumably going to give less space to Dawah. But one of the things that became clear to me as I spoke to people in the movement, whether it was leaders, even people who were associated with the so-called moderate, the middle generation wing, like Isam al um, was that they still fundamentally saw their work in terms of worship. And this came up repeatedly. Everything I do is a form of worship, as Samalarian would say. If I said, well, you know, what, what is happening to the Dawah faction? What's happening to the Dawah wing? There was some puzzlement and confusion about, well, why would you think that there is some tension over here? So this drove me to think about why we made this assumption in the first place, but also as the movement became more politicized and professionalized, what was going to happen to the Dawah mission. And later on, um, when I went back to Egypt in 2012, we also did see that there wasn't the expected split when the brothers were able to form a government after Mubarak's overthrow, right, between the so-called Dawah faction um, and the organization men. This is Gary Wickham's term. Um, so this was really an attempt to understand how political behavior and religious motivations, salvational motivations worked together for the brothers and how these motivations were going to shape their action. So there's been there's been a lot of books uh, written about the Muslim Brotherhood, a lot of research about it, and your approach comes at it from a somewhat different direction in terms of the kinds of sources you're using, the kind of research you actually did. Before we get into the substance of the argument, tell us a little bit about the research itself and um, why you made the choices that you made and what you were able to learn from them. Okay, so I focused really on discourse and I focused on how people understood their own work. So in a sense, this is an interpretivist and a constructivist approach. 
where we aren't assuming what people mean when they say I'm doing this for God. We're trying to figure out how they see their political incentives. Um, so I had a few different kinds of methods and a few different kinds of sources. One was internal movement discourse in terms of their tracts, in terms of their training materials, but also in terms of what they wrote for more public facing audiences about political work. And then there were interviews, uh, and these were possible mostly after 2011. And the goal over here was to say, rather than trying to say, here is what the brothers want from politics, how have they interpreted for themselves, for their base, and how does how do they interpret political incentives and choices in terms of what is meaningful to them and in terms of upholding their fundamental identity as people who are righteous right so this idea of righteous activism is something that requires mm -hmm. us to see how people interpret their own work and their own mission and so you looked at both internal and external type of discourse, which is quite interesting, right? Because you were looking in part at what they were saying to themselves about education, about uh, reform, about um, you know what they're doing when they're going on out campaigning for elections. Talk a little bit about that. Did you see substantial differences between the internal and the external discourses? Surprisingly, I didn't, and I expected to. Uh, this was an assumption that I think I and several others had that said, there's what people say when they're trying to appeal to wider audiences, and there's what they say when they're among their own. And one of the things that I found really interesting was that instead of trying to think, to look outwards, to say, how can we get as many people as possible to buy our mission, to understand it as something that could work for them, they were actually really concerned with how political activism would serve the Dawah and how activists within the movement were going to buy political activism as something that could be good for the movement. So it, there was actually a feedback process where they were trying to interpret political opportunities and political options in terms of what it would do for Dawa, but a lot more was focused on how is this going to help us serve God than was focused on how is this going to help us achieve power. So let's go into this a little bit more just before we into, before we get into like some of the details of it. So when they talk about uh, uh, political action being in the service of the Datwa, of, of, of proselytizing or of reform or of education, what does that mean to them? How does that fit within the broader sense of their agency and their position within you know, what they're trying to accomplish in the world? Mm -hmm. So the world for the brothers is not necessarily a place that is alien or hostile to the Dawah, right? It is a place that could potentially be quite friendly to the Islamic project because as far as they're concerned, the majority of Egyptians are good Muslims and they are almost innately inclined to buy the message. Um, so when they're trying to think about what the world and what politics can do for Dawah, there are a couple of different trends that we see. One is that they're focused on how new sites and institutions and spaces of political activism can draw in more people to support the message. When they look at the state and they look at opportunities to exercise little bits of power in different social spheres, this idea of tamkin, empowerment, it is also meant to do a kind of tarbiya, a kind of education, a practical education for activists and for others to show people how they could also be good Muslim activists. Um, so the ultimate goal of a lot of political work is to 
cultivate as many individuals as possible who will be good Muslim activists. The focus, the sort of shared focus of both the internal and the external discourse is mm-hmm. the same, which is to cultivate the good Muslim individual. Uh, and without the good Muslim individual, you're never going to have the, uh, the, the Muslim society. Having said that, one of the things that changes over time is that you have a greater embrace of how political activism doesn't have to wait for uh, religious cultivation to be successful. You don't have to wait for everybody to have been cultivated first. You can use political power in a sense to mm-hmm. jumpstart the cultivation process. And that's that big divide that runs through a lot of your discussion in the book between this bottom bottom up approach and then others who get impatient and they decide that state power, state institutions are perhaps a better way to um, bring about this religious cultivation. Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that we see with debates on Sharia and Sharia application is that there are people who say that you need to use the power of the state where possible. There's a hadith that's often quoted that says you can, you know, God brings more people to him through the Sultan than the Quran. You use political power to show people what it is to have a good Muslim society. But the ultimate goal is not political power. The ultimate goal is to show people that they should sign on to the Islamic project. This can be a little bit confusing because on the one hand, the brothers will always say that the state matters. Politics is essential. How can we be good Muslims if we're living in a state or under political system that does not support being good Muslims? The state educates people. The state judges between people. We want to make sure these are people in authority who are good Muslims. Um, On the other hand, the state is not supposed to be sought for itself. Right? The classic line is the state is not an admi- a soulless administrative formation. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to use the state to serve the message uh, and not vice versa. So I mean, one last thing uh, kind of on the method and kind of the broader picture about the book, which I find very interesting and, and admirable, is that rather than simply trying to, as I think many of us do, try and put the behavior of the Muslim Brotherhood into the terms of political action and you know concepts in political science with which we're familiar, but instead trying to take them on their own terms to really try and go from that kind of interpretive approach, as you said, of trying to really you know think through what they mean by the words they're using. You mentioned mm-hmm. Ahmed Khanani and Fred Schaefer and people like that. So it's coming from that kind of point of view. Can you tell us a little bit about terms or kind of their own uh, vocabulary for political action and how that differs from what, you know, kind of the mainstream political science might think is happening by those concepts or those words. Absolutely. So the fundamental concept that drives a lot of what the brothers try to do is the idea of amal saleh, righteous action. You are obliged to work for God um, in everything that you do. The term ibadah, which is worship, doesn't actually show up quite as much. It's all about being practical. It's all about living your faith. Preaching or dawah is something that we might associate with a kind of a spiritual conversion. There isn't a great distinction between spiritual and political outreach for the brothers, and the two are seen as interchangeable. Um, A couple of terms that are actually quite distinct from what we might assume. One is the idea of the righteous individual who seeks ethical cultivation, Mm -hmm. right? And we assume that education or cultivation is what the movement does internally to activists. And for the brothers, it's also something you do externally. This is what you do when you're trying to win support. You're actually trying to teach people 
how to be better Muslims. Another key term that is actually very different um, and that I was surprised by is the way that Sharia is used. Hmm. Because that's the term that we think we have a handle on. We think it's law, um, it's state power. Um, and the Egyptian state has used it in these ways as well. But the way that the brothers tended to use Sharia was as a way of saying that you had to be religiously cultivated enough to apply it in your own life and in the lives of those around you. But then you actually had to be a bit cautious about the state's efforts to apply it. Um, so religious review of legislation was something that the brothers supported somewhat in the 80s, but they were really picking arguments with the Mubarak regime about this because they thought that these were not the best people to do it. You couldn't actually talk about Sharia application till you had religiously cultivated people in a position of authority to do it. Um, and they were arguing with the state to say that Al-Azhar had to be allowed more autonomy before you could even think about Sharia application. So the mm -hmm. assumption of like a shortcut approach to Sharia application was one that didn't really hold. And in fact, we saw this in 2012 when the brothers were arguing with Salafis uh, about Sharia. And they actually said, you cannot talk about Sharia till you have convinced people that we can give them a good life. Um, and one of my interlocutors said, the Ministry of Supply is Sharia. This is what we're doing to apply Sharia. We're trying to give people food. And that is justice. And once they realize this is God's justice, they will support the project. So the legalistic approach that I was expecting to see was not actually borne out. I think most of us um, also in surveys, you know, for what makes people support Islamists, you know, say, well, one measure is how frequently do you pray and do you want the application of Sharia? Mm -hmm. And what that means for people who are hearing the brothers' message and for the brothers themselves might be quite focused on behavior and practice and piety and less focused on um, institutional outcomes. So it's, it's an interpretive lens through mm -hmm. which they would justify action and policy rather than a fixed outcome. Fascinating. So the, the book itself has a broad sweep of Egyptian history. And um, I, I think the bulk of the book is focused on the, you know, when they, when the brotherhood re-enters politics in the 1970s, 1980s. But maybe we could start by talking about the, the foundational period of Hassan al-Banna and as these different concepts of, of politics as worship, as you put it, kind of are set into place. Mm -hmm. Right. So Banna was not in favor of partisan politics, but he was in favor of political activism because he said that you could not be a good Muslim if you didn't engage with the issues of your day. In the founding period, however, the goal was to take what one author has called a trickle up approach. You have mm -hmm. to cultivate good Muslim citizens and then good, a good Muslim family, and then you will have um, the Muslim state. He wasn't averse to working with people in political and religious authority, um, but he believed that we had to sort of start with a bottom-up approach. One of the things that was central to Banna's mission was the idea of tarbiya, was the idea of ethical cultivation, as the, the, the line through all of these different stages. Um, that was the main method. The other key concept over here was the idea of Amal Saleh. You know, what are you going to do at every step of the way mm -hmm. to work for God? And within that, there's actually a great deal of room for maneuver. Um, we have a statist approach. We have a withdrawal from a statist approach in the 1950s, the 1960s, depending on opportunities. And others have written much more about this um, than I have. 
But we actually see a lot of what's explained as a reason for a change in strategy in similar mm -hmm. terms. Ultimately, this is the best thing for the Dao. One interesting thing about that early period under Hassan Abana is that the Brotherhood was a genuinely mass movement at the time um, in ways that it really isn't in other historical periods. And so this idea of this Tanvia reaching out broadly into the citizenry probably looked different to Abana than it did to some of the later, um, you know, the later iterations of the organization. Absolutely. So Banna was quite wary of uh, working with the free officers because of the early experience of what he saw as betrayal. Mm -hmm. But initially, one of the things that the brothers were quite keen on was to get someone who would be from the Brotherhood or from Al-Azhar or some other you know, good religious person to, to take charge of education, because education was still the key mission. Um, he lost faith in the state after a while. But I actually don't see as much of a difference between that early period and the later period in terms of the overall menhaj, right? The method mm -hmm. that was supposed to go forward. And certainly the brothers emphasize similarities, right? They'll often cite Banna's fifth conference speeches um, and his letter on education to say, what we're doing hasn't changed all that much. It's just in a different context. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly urbanization uh, and the rise of more urban branches of the Brotherhood and more people entering the Brotherhood in the 60s and 70s made a big difference. Student activism made a big difference. And we certainly see that um, mm -hmm. shaping how the Brothers thought about Tarbiya later on. So, the you know, obviously, uh, the uh, under Nasser, the Brotherhood is repressed. Uh, you know, the organization is shattered. You had the emergence of Said Qutb as an alternative, you know, theoretical approach. But then, like the narrative of the book really picks up with when they come out of prison, and uh, you know, and you, you mentioned Abdullah Aryan's book a number of times about the rebuilding of the organization in the 1970s. So, tell us about what you're seeing then in your sources as they begin to reconceptualize what politics could mean after this, you know, decade, two decades of experience in in prison. On the one hand, they see themselves as potentially being outflanked by other student activist groups. Um, they do also see that political opportunities may be opening up again, mm -hmm. and they have to work with what might be an impious system after all. So a lot of what we see in the early 80s from Omar al-Talmasani and Mustafa Mashur is an argument that we have to engage the sites where power is now allowed to us. We were not able to do this earlier. We were not allowed to publish. We were not allowed to organize. And now with Sadat's death and with Mubarak, we have these opportunities and they're going to be essential for the survival of the movement. Um, and if we take these opportunities, we will be able to ensure that the dawah spreads in all the spaces that it could spread and not leave all these spaces to the empire. So there's a lot of emphasis on how atheists and communists are going to take over parliament or going to be influential in parliament once elections are allowed again in the early 1980s and that it would be wrong to not see parliament as a potential member, as a pulpit. Mm -hmm. um, and that if righteous people participate in an institution that is not fully righteous, they can still do a lot. They can still sort of testify, stand up for the message, ensure that the message is not forgotten. So one fascinating thing in this period is that 1970s, it's a lot of campus activism, but the 1980s, they enter into elections and you spend a lot of time on the 1984, 1987 elections as 
you know, not just like the, how they're getting the vote out, but how they're justifying to themselves what they're doing. So tell us about this and um, what was really unique about that, about that moment of discourse and debate. Yes, it's interesting that they really went into electoral participation, even made an alliance with the Waft Party when they knew they had no chance of winning anything that approached power, right? Um, and there's one argument that says it was for self-protection, it was for acquiring resources. If you're in parliament, you cannot be arrested. That's part of it. That's certainly one justification. But there was also a full-on embrace of the idea that voting would be a religious act and a form of ethical cultivation and outreach. So it's a vote-seeking is a moral endeavor. It's not instrumental so much as it is a chance to say, I'm doing what I can for God. It's also a chance to persuade people to vote for righteous representatives because mm -hmm. they have a religious obligation. So you're persuading them to see voting as a, an obligation for them and is as important for their own salvation. There's a shift between the 84 and 87 elections between a more pedantic view that says we are here to teach people how to be better Muslims to a view that says, you know, voters have to exercise their own ethical agency. We want to cultivate you as potential workers for God. And then later on, there's more discussion of how Shura in parliament consultation will allow people to pressure those in power um, to essentially embrace policies that are in some sense more Islamic. Uh, and then there's a, there's a full on embrace of various kinds of economic policies mm -hmm, and social mm -hmm. justice and so on. Um, but we do see that they, always bring everything back to the idea of what this is going to mean for the Islamic project. This is a chance to represent the Islamic project, even if you haven't persuaded people to vote for you now. It's PR, right? This is how you're going to get your message out there. Now, you, you, in your, your research, you really focus on the products of Muslim Brotherhood members and leaders themselves. But of course, they're, they're embedded in this much broader set of debates. And so, and you're able to bring in people like Yusuf Akaradawi and Rashid Moshi and people like that, because the leaders inside are talking about them. And that's part of the overall curriculum and debate. And one of the things that you bring in there, which is quite interesting, is the way that they, not just Shura, but also even the idea of multi-party competition finds an Islamic justification in here through the, these ideas that they're developing. Absolutely. This is the biggest shift from the Banna era, because Banna did not believe that multipartyism could ever be good for the Dawah. And we see a lot of the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood leaders in the 80s and the 90s say it actually can be very good for the Dawah because you are teaching people how to work for Islam. You're getting as many people as possible with different ideas who fundamentally share a commitment to the welfare of a Muslim nation, to pool their ideas and work them out and figure things out in a way that resembles debate between schools of religious law, right? That's the justification, that's the framing. Um, and when someone like Isamal Aryan is asked in that period, well, okay, does this mean you would embrace any political ideology? He says, no, I mean, communists are certainly not part of this. We do not want atheists in this debate, but we can justify a certain level of political pluralism because it will functionally be mm -hmm. effective, right? For um, achieving a more Islamic outcome. No, it's, it's really interesting. And then of course, as the political system closes down again and you have these you know, successive elections with different degrees of political freedom, those and, and kind of you know, opportunities, uh, those debates kind of take different forms. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So in the 1990s, there is more of a focus on 
how you would still be committed to politics, even though you don't have a chance of getting elected, even though some of your people are in jail. Uh, and this is a more pragmatic turn where people say, leaders say, we may have limited chances for power, but we're going to use them because ultimately this is how we can work for God in a different way. So the idea of tamkin or empowerment mm -hmm. or using your, your power to pester the government, um, to stand up against certain kinds of policies, to participate in elections and things like professional syndicates, right? This is a chance to exercise influence where you can and you are also going to draw more people into different kinds of brotherhood-like networks and behavior through charity and benevolence. Um, so similar arguments for cultivation, for tarbiya and social tarbiya start to take off in different directions in this era. Social tarbiya being how do you use your position in society to educate other people about how they can be better Muslims and participate in a society and a political system in a way that will allow everybody to be better Muslims. And so, and so it's not really about how many seats you win. It's not really about trying to win elections. It's more about participating in the process and, and, and you know, behaving in this way. But winning does help, right? Because winning gives you access to influence and with influence, you can persuade more people. This is one of the arguments for Tamkeen, for empowerment in social institutions. If you set up a business, if you are a leader in a syndicate, if you are a union leader, you will have influence over people. But also you will have a chance to perform good Muslim governance. You will show people what a just system looks like in your little sphere. So for instance, if you are in the doctor syndicate, you would organize conferences on Islamic medicine. You would help people get jobs. You would show them what the alternative looked like if they wanted a more Islamic mm -hmm. social system. And power was very helpful in that regard. It was not, however, something that was to be pursued for its own sake. It also, uh, at just thinking back about the experience, it also created opportunities to scare people and to, uh, you know, give a negative vision, which maybe the brothers couldn't recognize, you know, when you have using parliament to try and impose public morality or that sort of thing. So it's almost a double-edged sword. Things that make sense within the confines of the movement's discourse might play very differently outside of it. Absolutely. So the assumption was that good Muslim voters would naturally recognize what the brothers were doing as good um, and that they had to be educated to see that, but that they would. One of the things that was, however, not a real focus was the idea of imposing hudud or criminal mm -hmm. punishments. There were some brothers who said, well, this will be helpful for producing social justice and a more law-governed society. Therefore, it will convince people that the Islamic project is good. But they were never at the forefront of these kinds of initiatives to, to use the hudud or to use other you know, tools of state to um, crack down. Um, and this was not a dominant view within the Brotherhood as well, uh, because ultimately the focus was popularity. You want people to like you, you want people to appreciate you, they will then be more willing to hear your message. Um, and then they will naturally right. be persuaded. But then, of course, this is happening within a kind of a broader Islamic field where there's a lot of other non-Muslim Brotherhood Islamists out there doing more radical things, the Hispa cases <laughs> and, um, you know, and even up to attacks on Coptic churches and things like that. And it's not even if the distinctions are very clear in the minds of the brothers, maybe not so clear in the eyes of the broader public. 
Like who's who? Yes, and that's one of the reasons why they put out a lot of statements in the 1990s to say, here's what our position is on all of this. And they're a little bit ambivalent because they are majoritarian. They do believe that Egypt should be a Muslim country, and they don't feel that they can condemn what the more radical groups are doing altogether. What they do is to frame what the radicals have done as misguided, and these energies should be channeled into something more productive, mm-hmm. right? These are hotheads who took a shortcut. Um, they were not properly religiously educated. And if people want a better form of Islam and Islamic governance, they need to listen to the brothers and their message. Um, but definitely, they were always worried about this. They were always worried about um, how people were going to see the message in these terms. It was also one of the reasons why they very much stuck to grassroots preaching and grassroots interactions and person-to-person interactions because they were wary of what would happen in the media. Um, They believed that the media was always fundamentally hostile to them, but that they would also be lumped in with people they did not want to be lumped in with. Um, So the interpersonal element is really, really key. You know, you have to show that you are a good person. Someone else will be drawn into your Uh, your networks by seeing that you are a good person and a good ethical person. And that is the fundamental way to convince people rather than policies Mm or um, mass media. No, that's really interesting. So I think a lot of the um, uh, listeners are going to be especially interested then in kind of 2011 and kind of what went wrong and how did the brotherhood navigate 2011 and its aftermath and kind of how do you read the continuities or the changes that come from pre-2011 to that, you know, that crazy two years. Absolutely. So one thing that's really interesting in 2011 is when the brothers formed the Freedom and Justice Party, they did not actually select people to join the party on the basis of who was, you know, most politically effective in a sense. They had a professionalization process, they had political training, But the fundamental norm was still to select the people who were seen as good people, uh, upright people, righteous people, movement men. This surprised a lot of people, but I think Marie Van Adzel has a really good book on this Mm -hmm. um, where she explains it. And this is something that I definitely observed as well, that the people who were seen as most godly were recruited because politics was too important to be left to those who were not godly enough, right? This was a high stakes, high risk period. The brothers had a chance to prove themselves to win an election, to show people what good governance looked like, and you had to manage this extremely carefully. Um, there was a new training curriculum that came out at this point that everybody had to do. The earlier curricula were you know, according to your level within the movement, but the curriculum also emphasized how social outreach and political outreach, which now most brothers were involved in, was going to win you essentially salvation points, right? It was not something that you did outside the, the dawah, a mission was something that had to be justified still in terms of the Dawah mission and your own salvation. There's also a very majoritarian view of politics at this point, which again harkens back to the idea that good Muslims are the voters you want to reach out to, and they will recognize you as the best representative um, of good Muslims. So popular and religious legitimacy are very much conflated. There was, as you recall, an outflanking also by the selfies at this point in time. This is something that the brothers were very concerned with and they were very troubled by. Um, on the one hand, they didn't want to form coalitions with people who didn't fundamentally agree on an Islamic mission. Mm-hmm. right? So the Salafis were their natural allies. The Salafis also win more votes than anybody expected. So that makes sense. 
But the Salafis in their view were people who didn't really understand the mission, right? Didn't understand the assignment. Um, in the first uh, session of parliament, we actually see this Hezbanur leader stand up and do the call to prayer. And Saad al-Katatni, who was the Brotherhood speaker, had him sit down because he said, this is not the place to pray. We're here to do God's work, which is to pass legislation for the popular welfare. Um, so we see a lot of continuity where Weber's ideas about righteous action and using politics to do some good for the people at this point in time. We also see a real emphasis on getting quote unquote good people in positions of power, mm -hmm. right? Get religious people into key positions, which frightened a lot of others who, you know, talked about brotherhoodization mm -hmm. um, and were concerned that the brothers were going to try to build power uh, in institutions and they would not be you know, able to uh, get anything else done. That messaging didn't really make sense to the brothers because they didn't see a contradiction between electoral majorities and using politics to expand the Islamic mission and to bring more people on board. But obviously it didn't play so well um, with those who had not quite bought um, their message. Mursi is, is also interesting because he, when he is elected as president, he uses a lot of lines and messages from the traditional Muslim Brotherhood view of politics, where he says, I will obey you, you know, obey me in as insofar as I obey God. I am not the best of you, but I am one of you. Um, and he's very much signaling to the religious base what he's going to do. One of the downsides of what the brothers did at this point in time, however, was that they had convinced a lot of people that they were going to be extremely effective. Support us because we will bring good to Egypt, right? This was the campaign message, we bring good to Egypt. And then they made their popular support, in a sense, contingent on um, political success, which had always been recognized as a very risky thing mm -hmm. by the brothers. But there was a level of confidence that said, we will, of course, do well. We will, of course, succeed in important ways. And this is not going to end badly for us, um, which was obviously a mistaken assumption. Yeah, because over the course of those two years, as you know, and as you write about in the book, you get this intense polarization across um, across Egyptian society over the question of the Brotherhood, which then, of course, ultimately, you know, results in the massacres and uh, Rabah Hamliya and the you know in, intense crackdown and repression which follows um, the summer of 2013, and um, you know, so clearly there was some issues with the way they were understanding their place within Egyptian society. Absolutely. They, there were a couple of things going on at this point in time. On the one hand, they were very worried about who was representing the religious mission. They didn't feel completely in control of their own image because there were a lot of Salafis, there were rallies uh, for Sharia that focused on applying it as a form of constitutional law. Um, they were facing a lot of pressure on this point, and they didn't necessarily want to go in that direction, but nor could they be seen as not the most important advocates, right, mm -hmm. for religion in the political process. On the other hand, they recognized the risks. They wondered if they had been ready um, for political power had they had they tried to do too much um, at once, because they interpreted a lot of political feedback in terms of what it meant to work for God and what it meant for their own piety as a movement, they were very quick also to see their rivals and see their opponents as people who fundamentally opposed 
the Islamic project, not just opposed the right. Brotherhood, which then made it much more possible to see the coup in fairly apocalyptic terms. But Rabal Adawiyah, the messaging was extremely religious. You know, Pharaoh has won. Um, we have to push back. The believing people have been moved aside. And Sharia, the Sharia, the idea of legitimacy, mm-hmm, was framed in very religious terms as well as popular terms. We represent the revolution. We represent what the people want, but we also represent what the believing people want. Um, and those who oppose us are couldn't possibly be on the side of the believing people. And this obviously leads to a, a focus on sort of st- staying in the square, you know, setting yourself up for, in a sense, a kind of repression that will, where, where you have to also see yourself as the people who are standing up for God against all odds, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to saying, oh, what is what is the practical thing to do? over here. Um, and even afterwards, some of the people that I spoke to said, well, you know, of course, we're God, the brothers are God's soldiers on earth first, we're not administrative power seekers, this is not something that we hear that where there would be sort of political trade offs, um, we cannot possibly, you know, step back when someone has been overthrown, who was legitimately elected, and it wasn't mm-hmm. just political legitimacy, it was also religious legitimacy. Well, let's, um, you know, for the last question, let's zoom back out uh, away from Egypt. And, you know, having, having done this in-depth study of the discourse and, and the practice of Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, you know, what do you think the big lessons are for scholars of Islamism or of just more generally kind of Middle East comparative politics? Well, first of all, I think that what people mean by the Islamic project, even when they use very similar terms, can be very different simply because they frame what has to be done in terms of context. So, for instance, I also did some research in Morocco, where the Adlwaisan movement and the Peje, they both used very similar terminology to the brothers. They talked about practical tarbiya, they talked about um, righteous action, and, and they talked about Sharia in very similar ways, but they had very different strategies that emerged out of it. They interpreted opportunities to act for God very differently. Should you take state power when it's offered to you, or should you try to build your, your strength and work for God at the grassroots? I think one of the broader lessons for religion and politics generally is that the path from piety or commitment to a religious project to a kind of political action is not clear cut. Framing matters a great deal. How people feel that politics will help them uphold their identity as religious people matters a great deal. So if, for instance, you're doing a survey on why people might vote for Islamists and you think, okay, I'm going to code piety in this way, I'm going to mm-hmm. assume that people understand what it means when people say, I want to work for God in this way, you may want to dig a little bit deeper into how they frame it in practical terms. Is this something that matters for individual action? Is this something that matters for policy? Um, but also the religious motivations, in a sense, can be extremely tricky to pin down. Um, and we frequently use proxies for them, right? Instead of saying, how do activists or movements understand their own mission? We say, well, they want Sharia. And here's what we know about that. Um, and I think it's very worth trying to understand that process for each movement differently, mm-hmm. um, for each kind of religious activism differently, and not to see it as a stock. There are not pious people out there who naturally relate to a pious public because of something that we can 
decide is piety, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it can mean very different things for different people over time, even within the same religion, even within movements that actually fundamentally agree on what their their goals are. Um, so I would say that's the main lesson. Now, it's really interesting. Uh, we've been speaking to uh, Sumita Pahla about her brand new book, Politics as Worship. This has been the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and thanks to Sumita Pahwa for talking with us about her book, Politics as Worship. Let it, let it.